So I just want to finish off a series, a very short series uh, called Called Out that we began last week. And um, we're talking about being called by God, not being called out by God, but being called and then out by God. And obviously that's in the context of um, the, the conversation we'll have after the, after the meeting today, but it means being able to communicate what we have over last week and this uh, means we can just get straight down to business in our, in our meeting and, and talk about all, the, all that everyone would like to feedback and talk with us about. But last week we talked into the parable of the sower and uh, it was, uh, many resonated with a couple of aspects of the message in the sense that we talked about the fact that we get to sow wherever we go, the seed of the kingdom, the gospel message is, is sown out there, but so many of us just fed back. It's just so hard in Australia. It, it is. It is hard. There is hard ground in Australia. There's lots of good ground as well. But our workplaces, it can be so frustrating because... Most of us would go to a workplace where we're not able to share the gospel, really. We can be available. There might be one moment every six months or in a year, really, that we get a chance. We've been there. We've been faithful, a good example. We're doing good work. We're giving a kingdom example. But at the end of the day, there doesn't seem to be too much soft ground. And it's completely understandable. And it's, that's okay. And I think sometimes we can feel burdened that this theme that we're talking about, about being sent out, means that I have to be an evangelist. And we're not all evangelists. We're, we're just, some of us are, some of us just can't help but share the gospel. But other, some of us are gifted at other things. And our circumstances uh, mean that we, we don't just get a chance to share the gospel. Our bosses might reprimand us if we do. We might get sacked for that kind of thing. But if that's the price we pay, I guess that's the price we pay. But we just don't feel like those opportunities are out there. And so this hard ground thing can rob us of our faith because we think there's no way through. We think that hard ground is always going to be hard ground. Or we just think, well, what's my life about? How can I contribute to this whole deal of this glorious mission of God? But what I found in life, and as, as so many of us here have as well, with, with your careers, with your families, and with our, our Christian mission and ministry, that impossibility is really just a matter of perspective. It's just a matter of how you look at it. The walls that we come up against in our life uh, are really just steps. They're not really walls. They just need a, a bigger person to get over them. They're just steps in our life. Now, we were told before we started here at Kenmore Church that it was impossible to plant a church at Kenmore. You can't do it. Many had tried uh, in the, over the years. And in fact, in this premises, two had tried and failed and it, it wasn't going to work. So all the, all the you know, estimations were it wasn't going to work again. But if it's God's mission and if God speaks... There's always a way. God does never, he never retreats. If there's a wall before us, it's just an opportunity for us to grow and assess and go, there just must be another way. If I can't push through this thing, surely there's a way over it or around it or we'll disassemble the wall, but we're going forward anyway and the gospel always advances. So we've just got to find the blockages and deal with them. And so as we look at the huge and real challenges that we're, we're facing in Australia with with uh, kingdom growth and the church, we just need to realise it's not impossible. It's very possible. It's just a matter of what we're believing about that. Because Australian Christians have believed the lie that Australians aren't interested in the gospel. And it's just not true. They are. The, the gospel message is going just fine. Uh, spiritual uh, curiosity is as high as it's ever been. It's just a matter of how we attack it and what we do about that. 
So let's, in the context of that, just reset it back to the main text that we started with last week. It's Matthew 4.19 where Jesus called Simon Peter and he said, follow me. There's the call. He called in, follow me and I will make you, so there's an assembly process going on, I will make you a fisher of men. So we're called to follow and fish and, and, and God's job is to make us into something on the way. That's, that's his job, only he can do that. But we're called to follow and for everyone who follows, we're also called to be a fisherman as well. And so the two sides of that coin never really seem to go away. And so this works a couple of different ways in the sense that he was talking to Simon there. Uh, so there are some things that were just for Simon, there are some things that are just for us. But the fact that he just said that to Simon talks about this sort of uniqueness that all of us have. Because we're not all called to be evangelists, as I've said, but some of us are called to be merciful. Some are great teachers, some are prophetic, some administrators. There's all sorts of giftings. You've all, anyone who's given their heart to Jesus Christ, who has the spirit in their life, has been given a mix of spiritual gifts, has been given a history and a calling and a personality type and all the things that we are. And he calls us and says, well, that's where you've started. I've made you into that. But I'm going to take that which you are and convert it from just being vocational to being missional. See, we just think, well, all that God's made me to be, that's working for me now in my, in my lifestyle that I've got, whether it's at home or at work or so on. And I'm using it and that's who I am. And it's just who I am and I just keep turning up. But sometimes we've got to realise that the vocation in life that we have serves the mission, not the other way around. That the income that we produce is, is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. See, we are Christian first and foremost. We're Christian before we're anything else. Our Christianity carries with it this, this missional call. God sent Jesus. Jesus sent the Spirit. The Spirit's in us, sending us out. So intrinsic to our life is this primary priority to follow and fish. Everything else is built up upon that and it's not... Um, this isn't something we try and bolt onto the side if we've got extra time and money. But sometimes our vocation, uh, we treat it as a reason why we can't do the mission because our vocation may not present a mission opportunity. And Simon's didn't either, to be honest. He was a fisherman. He, what's he going to do? He's out in the boat all day. When he gets back, he stinks like fish. Nobody wants to talk to him. He's got to fix his nets. Who wants to talk to that guy? So... But the, the very thing that made him who he was created a potential for God to use him in this missional thing as well. And so we can't let our vocation be the reason why we don't get involved in our mission. So for Peter, Peter, it was a bit more obvious than for the rest of us. Obviously, Jesus has given him a specific word, but he was a fisherman. And Jesus, you can imagine the scene. I'm just like, you're good at fishing. I built that into your life. And then he just demonstrates that Jesus was better anyway, so Jesus could do it without him. But that wasn't the plan, was it? So Peter was good, Jesus was better, but Simon plus Jesus is best. And so the vocation and all that he's made us to be is meant to combine with him about the mission. It's not about what we do with our life vocationally necessarily. That is to serve the greater mission. You look at what, what he could do that, that qualified him to become a fisher of men. So obviously he's going out as an evangelist and he's, and he's going to be good at it. Why? Because he could, he could read the tides, he could read the seasons, he, could, he had the stick ability to endure storms, he knew where to fish, he knew how to lead people. There was a certain gift mix there that was going to be very handy with the gospel. He was perceptive, 
He was enduring. He was practical. He was enthusiastic. He liked to talk, probably a bit too much. Jesus had to work on that. But he was obviously going to become a good fisher of men. But for all of us Queensland introverts, it's not necessarily the same, is it? But there's always going to be enough to get the job done. The fisher of men thing applied to him, but it actually applied to everyone as well. But for those of us who aren't like Simon Peter, we might think, well, it's not for me. But have a think about who you are for a moment. Who is it that God's made you to be? And who's he, who's he making you to become? The essence of those, those elements in your life, your personality type, introverted, extroverted, people-focused, task-focused, what are you? Or if you're, a, if you're an accountant, what's made you really good at that? Or an engineer, why are you so good at becoming an engineer? Was it just because you were taught how to do it? Or was there a natural latency of, in your DNA that, that you, you did really well at that? There are elements to who you are that make you very useful in the overall kingdom of God. And it's not just about your career now. This is about how, does, how do those things... See, if I, if I become an accountant now because I'm good with spreadsheets and I love seeing zero at the, on the bottom right there... On, the, on Excel. Today, that, makes, that would make me a great accountant, for example. But what if I was born 500 years ago before Excel was created and, and they didn't have accounting firms and, and there was no computers, there was no internet and there was not mobile phones? What would that guy do? Well, there were other things. But, but that person with that same DNA would rise up and would find a field in life where they would just keep turning up and they'd be productive. So we're not necessarily called to be an accountant or a lawyer or an engineer. We're called to be who God's called us to be wherever he puts us at that time. So when we look at that, we realise that if I pull, did a case study on all the disciples, we had Simon Peter, we had John, we had you know, Thomas, and we had all the other guys there. I don't think all of them were very good at evangelism necessarily. It just sort of wouldn't make sense. They're all, I mean, the tax collector, he wasn't going to be a great evangelist. He's the accountant guy, you know, strategist or something. Where does he fit? But what you'll notice is when the mystery of the church, and when I say the church, I've always, I've always thought of it in a local church context, just this a local church. But what if our local church only has 15 people in it? I tend to think the way that the, they saw church back then is the way we need to start seeing church now, where it was more the church on a regional basis. It wasn't just a church, it was the church. Very different mindset. Because what we find is the birds of a feather these days flock together. So, so you'll get all the extroverts go to one church, all the introverts to another, all those that don't like women in leadership go to this other one, and then you've got all the people who don't believe in the Holy Spirit go to this one. And they're all tucked away there in the little silos, not touching each other. But if we were to put all those people together, I think we'd find we'd have a hugely equipped, fully resourced, gospel missional church reaching our city. But somehow... Man-made churches just drawn circles around us all, put walls up and said, we can't be with them because I like being around these people who are just like me. So my mindset's changing on this. My goal is not to build a church. My heart is on the church and how we can pull these walls down and be engaging not only with our fellowship but with other fellowships everywhere and working together. How can, and how can we do this in the same way that the early church was built? So let's get back to the topic of fish for a moment. Fishing and nets. There's two types of fish uh, that we see. There's probably, go with me on this. I know there's more than two types of fish. 
In Pat's message today, there are two types of fish. There, there are the fish that are close to the shore and there are the fish that are sort of out in the deep somewhere. So these fish that are close to the shore, so we're, if we're called to be fishers of, of men and women, if we're called to do that, that means all of us together, the sum total of all we bring to this party will end up getting that role done. So if we all do who God's made us all to be, if we all play our part, the fishing's going to get done. So the, there's a fish that are close to the shore. So it's like the low-hanging fruit, if I could put it that way. So the data says, and I've had it up on the screen many times in the last year, 62% of Australians, I still grapple with that number, 62% are Christian or are warm to the gospel in Australia now, right now. There's a lot more people who are looking for or who need a healthy local church than there are healthy local churches to be found. That's the reality. The amount of people are not the problem. It's the way we do church has become the problem. So some of them, they fit into different categories. Some of them are like, like I was when I'd come from a non-Christian background, but I was spiritually curious. There's always a group out there that are like that. They haven't got any religious background, but they're, they're keen to hear. But, but some of them are raised in a religious culture. And this seems to be a growing group where they've, they've come to Australia or if they've been in Australia from a different group, they might be Muslim or Hindu or, or some other background. And the interesting thing is that McCrindle has done recent research and it's showing, uh, without any sort of argument, you can't get around this, that 50% of all Australians, all of them, are extremely or very open to being in a spiritual conversation about views that differ from their own. This is new. It hasn't been like that before. I remember the 60s, not in Queensland, in New South Wales. I heard it was more polarised up here. You had the Catholics and you had the Protestants. And it's like you never, you weren't supposed to mix. But these days now we've got this whole cooking pot of religion coming in and, and half of us are quite interested in having a conversation to learn about views that differ from their own. So there are those who are spiritually curious, there are those who are raised in a Christian culture who are open to something new. But there's a whole other group that are what I call the de-churched. They've sort of been raised in church, but they've left that old format because it just didn't get traction in their life. They couldn't relate to it. It left them with too many questions. For whatever reason, they, they, they have a God framework and they understand church as well. They might have gone to Sunday school up to age 10 or something, and now they've, they've walked away from that because it just, just didn't land in their life. There's a whole bunch of people out there like that. And then there's a whole other group that I call the reawakened. So that God is stirring in their hearts. And they realise that, that God, in, and, and they haven't quite defined who God, what that looks like for them, but they just realise that without squaring this one away, they're only living a, a half-life, and it's a, it's a conversation that they really want to have. McCrindle again says that 33% of Australians have begun to think more about God since COVID-19, and 30% say they've been praying more. So there's a lot of spiritual curiosity that's out there. Almost half have thought more about the meaning of life and their own mortality. Isn't that fascinating? The fishing pool close to shore is abundant. Look up, Jesus said. The harvest is white. It's out there waiting for someone to engage in these spiritual conversations. So we classify these groups as warm to the gospel. And they respond to different things to those who are cold to the gospel. Friendship, an invite to church. Almost 80% of them would come to church if they're invited. And so what we do here on a Sunday becomes high stakes. We need to have room for them. We need to be able to have reasons to invite them and we need to have room for them when they come. 
So they've got a, a God framework. They understand the bait. They wouldn't want to be in a church necessarily, but they understand why it's there. So therefore, our Sunday environment like this becomes a, a key mission tool in that sense. And uh, we've worked really hard over the years to, for reasons why this wouldn't be a missions tool, but we've come full circle and we've realised that what happens here on a Sunday is a missions outpost, not just a church service. It's, it's, a, it's a draw card and a way to bring those who are far from God into God's presence. So your investment, your service, your, your giving, your, your spiritual gifts become a vital tool in what is a very significant fishing boat for God, close to shore. That means we can all actually be fishermen, engineers, accountants, teachers, housewives, whatever. We, we all are part of a very important boat, and if we all play our part, this thing's going to become incredibly effective. So that's the fish close to shore, but there are other fish out there, and this is where it gets a little bit more scary for the common folk, the fish in the deep. In Luke 5, 4 to 6, we, we, we see a bit more detail about this uh, process of uh, Jesus working with Simon. And it says this, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water. Interesting that he said that. Whenever the Gospels record adjectives like that, it's for a reason. So go out deeper. I'm sending you out somewhere else. Let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So let's talk about nets for a moment. Their nets had worked before um, for the previous size of the harvest, but not for the harvest of the size that Jesus had in mind. Again, this is a core question as to why we started Kenmore Church four and a half years ago, was an answer to the question, what if Jesus wanted to save 50,000 people in our region in one year? Could a local church get out of the way and let that happen and work with God on that? And the, and the harsh answer there is, is no, we couldn't because we haven't got the systems, we haven't prepared a net that can flex, that can scale without being limited by our budgets and our lights and our screens and our skinny jeans and smoke machines. We, our, the budget and the, and the chairs can't keep up with it. So we trip over ourselves with this. So we need a scalable system. We need a whole new net to do this. Not just true of us, it's of every church everywhere. So we need a new type of net if we're going to go out into the deep and catch the scale of fish that Jesus has in mind. Because as soon as we put limits on what we can facilitate God doing in the church regionally, we've lost the plot, completely lost the plot. We're no longer thinking on a kingdom basis because God can do more than we can ask or imagine. So we need to prepare ourselves to be a place that can be ready for when God does more than we can ask or imagine. No limits, no, a full scalable framework for that. Now, when you, you, you come back to yourself, you're not a net. You're, you've got a little fish hook. You're a fish hook. You're just one. So I cast it out. I can catch one fish at a time. That's awesome. That's your testimony. That's, that's your time at work. That's your sharing with your friends. You, you've, you've got the hook. But together, we can form a net. And this church, we can form a good net, a big net. If we can get the other churches to think this way, we can form a serious net for the whole of the region. And we're not there yet, but let's start here. Let's try it here. So the thing about nets is there are many strands and many elements to the net. It's not just a hook. It's not just an evangelist. It's the whole thing. In Matthew 4.21, Jesus moves on from talking to Simon, and he goes straight to James and John. It says, going on from there, and it looks like it was literally the same time. It wasn't weeks later. It's like, James and John have just seen what happened with Peter. 
And I'm wondering, it doesn't say it in the text, so you can't conclude. I'm wondering whether James and John have just watched what happened. Jesus comes walking their way. And they're in their boat of their father Zebedee preparing their nets. They're going, there's a harvest to come in. Let's prepare the nets. But even if they weren't, they're still there and they're, and they're tying their nets together. And that word preparing is a, is a fascinating word. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It, it's katatismos. And it means to equip, to perfect, to complete, to make something whole. So they're weaving their net together to make it whole so it can handle a great harvest. The other place that word is used is Ephesians 4.11. And it talks about God's leaders, the pastors, evangelists, and teachers, and shepherds. Their role is to katatismos, the people, so to mend and make whole, to make a net, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we're sort of almost like they're James and John. We've got to get this whole net together so we can get a kingdom-sized harvest for this thing to catch more fish. We need to prepare the net. So that's what we're talking about now is preparing that net. How do we do that as a church? So the fish of the deep water. Jesus had said to Simon, go out into the deep water because that's where, that's where the big fish are. And in the deep, the, the fish are, it's not all warm there. It's not all warm. But we're called to engage them Anyway, and this has been something of an epiphany for me. I must admit, I always thought, let's focus on the warm. But I realise we're not called to just the warm people who are warm to the gospel. We're called, we're called to the big fish as well. Those who are rock hard, we're called to get out there and expose them to the gospel. That seed that we talked about last week was scattered on rocky soil too. So we're to spread our message further if we're to represent Jesus well in this area. But let's look at the challenges and, the, and the, the ways we do that over the years. We just put that first slide up there, Matey, about, um, and I'll, I'll try and talk into this. I'm hoping you can see the detail of that. I've borrowed these ideas uh, in the next few slides from a man called Ger Jones from Vintage Church in the USA. And normally, uh, I haven't been learning a great deal from the US church when it comes to this subject. I've been more uh, looking at what's happening in the UK. But Ger Jones was a, is a great man who's from an English heritage. Uh, he was a lawyer. Um, was doing well in the global legal scene in business uh, law. And uh, the Lord tapped him on the shoulder to go and start a church in LA, but not in, uh, not in churchy LA, uh, in the hardest part of LA, the part of Los Angeles where they hate Christians, literally hate Christians. And uh, he got there, and as a disciple of the Alpha program, uh, Gurr found that it just didn't work because no one would turn up. They were, they were against anything that Christians stood for. So he took himself through a fascinating process, which is, I think, uh, our process will end in a different place to where he ended up, because we're not in LA. Um, we're in Australia. But he, he, he talked us through how we've had to change nets over the years. So he talk, we, we look first at the 50s. And many of us are still stuck there in our mindset, because what we did in the 50s worked. And so we see there that uh, when it comes to where people are at and their journey to the gospel, that the social attitude was very different to what it is today. So Christianity was popular. It was mainstream. It was accepted that the, the Ten Commandments you know, were our uh, social law as well. There was no real question about that. People were inquisitive about that. And so if they didn't know God, they were very open and willing to ask the question. The church world was highly respected. Uh, so we're talking the 40s and 50s now. So, and you get um, guys like Billy Graham and so on who, just, who were 
their message was accepted because they were respected. But the gospel was seen as, as relevant. It was seen as fundamentally true. All we needed to do was have it explained to us. And Jesus meant a lot back then in the culture. It was not a, it was not a question of, well, who was Jesus? Why did he have to die? And so for people to come to Christ back then, the, the key modes to do that that were very effective were through simple creating spaces where people could undergo conviction. Sounds negative to us, but where the Holy Spirit could convict them and say, you need a saviour, come to Jesus. That's where the saying comes from, have a come to Jesus moment. So the strategy that the church in the West used were things like the four spiritual laws. You might remember that pamphlet, handing out tracts and so on. Billy Graham crusades, revival Sundays, guest Sundays, street mission, beach mission. Anyone ever been on beach mission team? Uh, A few of us here. Still work to some extent, um, but things have moved on quite considerably. Then we found after the 50s, we go into the, into the um, post-Christian Australia. So from the 70s to the 90s, things began to change. The social attitude to Christianity was, it was still basically popular. We hadn't come across the fierce criticism where well, there's been exposed abuse and all those things. That still hadn't been exposed yet. So Christianity was still seen as popular. Uh, people were inquisitive, there was spiritual hunger out there, and the church was still fundamentally uh, respected. But what had happened was, now it's being seen as boring, because they hadn't caught up with the times. Uh, it was seen as irrelevant. It was seen as untrue, potentially, because now, uh, finally, after a couple of hundred years of the age of reason, people are coming up with reasons why, in their mind, uh, this, this story can't be true. And so we had to argue against that. And they hadn't quite figured out why is Jesus God and why Jesus had to come. And I was very much, I became a Christian into that environment. So we we changed tack. How do we get people to the cross? Well, we've got to get over those barriers. And the way we did that was through attractional services. So we became an attractional church where we made it um, easy for non-Christians to come. And so you saw many churches in America, for example, would start their service. First three songs would be secular songs just so a non-Christian could come in and feel at home. They were sort of positive, but then they'd, it was almost like a bait and switch sometimes. Suddenly we turn to a gospel message and we've got you, you know. Um, there was a lot of ministries built around evidence, and so you see a lot of apologetics was starting to come out. Um, we had seeker-sensitive services. Uh, teaching was very practical and topical. And, so, and that's worked. That sort of worked from the 70s right through till the end of the 90s, and it's still, it's still working to some extent. So you're combining an attraction plus the sense of conviction. So in this sort of environment, the the preacher would talk openly about sin and the need of a saviour, and that would resonate, whereas it doesn't now. You start talking about sin and a saviour now, and you start seeing people run out of door. It's it's fascinating. You've got to take a few steps before you earn the right to have that conversation. So now you get to now in 2023, and and we've got to ask the question, what are we going to do about all these barriers? Because now people are unaware of the gospel. There's no cultural memory of the gospel. Many of us don't, or them, don't know a Christian. The church is seen as toxic, a place where people become abused. Uh, the gospel has been largely rejected, or Christians certainly have, and it's certainly unpopular. And the, and the persona of the new generation coming through is largely experiential. So if you want to talk about religion, you better not just talk about an apologetic. You better not just talk about, just give me information, because they want more than that. They want the information, but they want the experience as well. Because if it's just information, if you can argue someone into it, someone else can argue them out of it. But the person with an experience is never at the mercy with somebody with an argument. They like to be about self-discovery. They value personal truth. This is true to me. That's the mindset of this generation. And they have massive questions that we can't ignore. 
You can't just go over them anymore. You can't just ignore that and just say you need to come to Jesus because you need a saviour, as true as that is. So what we need to do is the next slide. That's now 2023. We, we, we don't ignore those issues. Now we need to face them head on, engage in a real gritty conversation with human beings who deserve a conversation, who deserve to be loved, who deserve a demonstration, and who deserve a demonstration of the power of the gospel, not just a conversation about it. So this is the messy world we find ourselves in. And, but so the church largely is not ready for this. Or if they are, if they, even if they admit that this is right, how do you change modes from what we've been doing for the last 30 to 50 years into something that can handle that mess? Because that requires energy and resource and conversations. And not necessarily this, though this still plays a part, as we've seen. We need to get involved in other things besides Sunday. And so tools like Alpha, uh, which we'll talk into in the weeks and months to come, need to be done, but they need to be done really well. They need to be done differently to what we've done in the past. As fruitful as it's been, Ger Jones, who was a disciple of that, found he had to deconstruct the whole thing based on these questions. How do I pull this apart and bring the same truths but in a way that people can really accept them and create environments where a non-Christian would come, know they're loved and want to listen to that? And the other element is going to be missional groups where people from our number are prepared to go out, not just to do a small group, but to become a missional community in our suburb and we're meeting together with the express purpose of inviting those of us that we know that are far from God and creating a space where we can have conversations with them without judgment uh, to earn the right to share the gospel because they now trust our views. That's the sort of future and present that we're facing. And so we've got to somehow navigate reforming church and churches, not just here but, but uh, everywhere in the West, that if we're going to fulfil our mission, because if we don't, if we don't do that, we've relegated ourselves to a slow death and irrelevance. And the gospel will still work. It can be an evolution or it can be a revolution. But even if we don't do anything, and all our churches as they stand these days slowly drift away as, as one by one we pass away, the gospel will come back. It will, it will rise again. Because it always does. It's always the power of salvation and the human heart knows it needs it. But it may well be in a form that's unrecognisable to what we see today. That's going, that'll be harder for people like us. So we can do it the hard way or the easy way. I think, I think this is the easy way. It's challenging. It's also incredibly exciting. It's going out into the deep water and saying, okay, it's not just up to me. But I can be on this fishing boat and I can play my part. I can, I can hoist the sail and I can drive the engine and I can do this and that. It's not just me. But it requires all of us to contemplate that we're, we're not a pleasure cruise liner here. It's hard for me to say that when it feels a lot like a pleasure cruise liner in here. We've got lovely lights and all the stuff, great people, and we can sit in comfy chairs. We're not like Israel who's forging a and blazing a trail in a hostile culture against Christianity. We are, but we're doing it in a comfortable setting. So it's going to require us to adapt and change a little bit incrementally. We can do it incrementally or we can do it on a bigger scale in years to come. But my heart is on the, on the kids of today. I don't want to lose a generation. And I think to, to, to be ready and prepare a net for them requires us to act now and to be smart about it 
to understand the generation, to understand the culture that we live in and go, I'm up for this. I'm not, I can't do it alone. We've got to do it together and with God's power. And we can do this. If we rigorously attack the blockages and we commit ourselves to forming a net, understanding that every single person that's on a seat here today can play a vital role to ensuring that net is formed, whether it's through your, your spiritual gifts, your time, uh, your, your resources, whatever it is, we all get to play a part and change the world. And this message now is I'm having as many conversations outside of this church as I'm having inside the church about other churches joining us in this state and around Australia where we're all seeing the same thing. But thankfully, we're a little bit ahead of the game where we've done the data, we've looked at what matters, we've looked at what works and what's definitely not going to work, and we're coming back when we're saying, we're ready to go. But there's only so much you can talk about it. And I'm finding way too many people are talking about it and not enough are doing it. Because doing it means I've got to stop something that I'm doing and have a conversation with someone and engage with their life. Why? Because people matter. That's why we started, and the moment we lose that, we've lost the plot. People matter. So Jesus said to get out into the deep water. That's the same for us as a church. It's the same for you as a human being, just with your own life. I think the amount of people that I pray with and that we minister to are finding that in their life we're just caught up in the breakers. We're caught up in the surf, aren't we? It's like tumble, tumble, COVID, inflation, it's this, it's always that. These breakers are relentless. They just never seem to stop. And I've noticed in my long life that the breakers just keep coming. They're just always there. And if you stay in the breakers, you're just constantly fighting against that flow and you're constantly gasping for air. And the other thing is you seem to always have your feet on the ground and you feel compelled to push against it. But I've got a feeling God's calling us into the deep water, not just for the gospel, but for ourselves, because you're not going to do that fishing if you're stuck in the breakers in, in our own life where all the, all the turbulence just keeps robbing us of wind, robbing us of energy, robbing us of a vision for something greater. But Jesus said, look up, look out. The harvest is white. Get out into the deep water. What are you doing in the breakers? But in the breakers, your feet don't touch the ground, do they? It's like now I'm swimming. I'm in the deep, sorry, in the, in the deep water, your feet don't touch the ground. There's something about being stuck in the turbulence of our life, personally and even as church, where we just, I'm on the ground and the waves are coming. I say, okay, I'm fighting it and I'm doing it in my own strength, but I'm wearing out, I'm wearing out and those breakers aren't stopping and I'm not making any progress because I don't want to go into the deep water because then I'm not touching the ground. Now it's a faith step and I'm just swimming with God. Now I'm going to go with the tide, but at least I know he's with me and I'm with the big fish now. It's such a different way of living. Those breakers in our lives are never going away. I'll never stop getting your emails. Channel 7 will never run out of bad news stories about the church. It's not going to stop. But we can win. It's just a matter of whether we engage in the breakers or we get out of the deep water. We change just a few things. We stop pushing with our feet on the sand and we start swimming. And we're all in. It's beautiful out there. I've been there. It's great. It's a little bit scary at first, but then it's awesome. And there's big waves out there. You can catch them. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray your blessing on each of us. Lord, we could, you said that you would build your church. So, Lord, I've given the message. But it's your spirit 
that inspires and gives us courage. Father, we're not going anywhere without you. We can't get anywhere without you. But we can set our little sails and we can head out in our boat and we can get out into the deep water. So Lord, we pray that you would guide us. We pray that we would hear you. And Lord, I want to pray for each one of us that's here today who's just gasping for breath. The problems they're facing are very real. They're weighty and they never seem to be going away. And yet the turbulence in our own mind, we can choose to worry or not. So Father, I just pray for each of us that you give us the faith to get our feet off the sand, to go out into the deep water. Take a, take a new step. Do things a new way. And live the life that you've designed us to live for a day such as this because it's fallen upon our shoulders to do something radical and new. It's easy for guys like me. We love this stuff, but not everyone's like that. So Lord, give us the faith. Give us the courage at home and at church to swim in the deep waters. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, God.